As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion, I'm Vonnie Quinn. This week, Stephen Mim on the Bahamas, a haven in maybe more senses than one. And... Unless the geopolitics changes, then the reliability of Kazakhstan as a source for most of the world's uranium is going to be contestable. David Fickling on how the uranium supply chain is a little too dependent on one nation for comfort. And later we'll speak with Shuli Ran on China's system of taxation. But first to the markets and John Alters' cautionary tale this week. Essentially, he says, beware the barrage of predictions for 2023 flooding your inbox right now. And John joins us now. John, we come to the Roman calendar year-end with a bunch of assumptions, including that there's often a so-called Santa Claus rally and so on. So let's first ask, what does actually happen in terms of things like position squaring or profit-taking or loss harvesting that we should be aware of in the run-up to December 31st? Well, it's it's often known in Britain as bed and breakfasting. The idea of taking losses to give yourself an allowance to maximise your ability to offset capital gains. Because a lot of people have taken a lot of losses this year, you might well find that there's some confusing activity when that happens. And there's window dressing when people want to end the year with portfolios that make it look like they've been smart. Mm. Um, Buying into stocks that have done well, even though that's almost exactly what they shouldn't be doing. It's Difficult to work through exactly what that's going to imply for this year when, frankly, there was almost nothing you could have been in that would make you look smart. And it would be a great idea to prove that you were 95% in cash at the beginning of the year. You don't really want to be in that position now. So it is going to be a strange final month for the year. And next week we have the final inflation numbers followed immediately after by the FOMC. I, I suspect... That still overshadows absolutely everything else and and will for the foreseeable future. I imagine that will trump any of the excitement that would come with the end of the calendar. Right, and we're actually almost lucky that there are still catalysts or it would be quite the long December. But something else that happens from early December usually is we get analyst predictions, huge long research notes outlining sell-side assumptions for the year ahead and and predictions. What are the wilder predictions that did catch your eye? I I don't know how many I've been through, but yeah, Yeah. This is the time of year when you get a lot of predictions. The the, the good side of this is that it's a very good discipline to force yourself to sit down with a piece of paper or with a spreadsheet and come up with a clear prediction. There's no question that that's a a good discipline, just like at college. It's a good idea to actually have to write an essay or whatever. Actually, publishing what you're expecting and what your assumptions are is a good idea. And a lot of the research that people produce at this time of year is pretty interesting. It's worth finding away. That said, there's almost no point taking any notice at all of what they say for their final numbers, particularly for the stock market, because the stock market on a year-to-year basis is incredibly difficult to predict. And it tends, you know, the stock market rises by an average of 7 or 8% a year over time. It 
very rarely rises by 7 or 8% in any one year. Mm. tends to be up in double figures or very occasionally take a big fall. But it, it's unusual to get a year when it just gains about 7 or 8% even though on average, over the very long term, that's what you can expect to get. But there is mm. some usefulness to year-ahead prognostications, though, right? Even if it's only to knock people out of habitual thinking. I certainly agree that it's worth thinking through what you really believe. Yeah, It would probably be more useful to try to come up with predictions five or ten years hence. Right. Which are impossible. Obviously, there's so many unknowns once you begin to go that further into the future. But you then have a much clearer scenario analysis and you have much more of a grasp of what you see both the risks and the opportunities being. The longer you move into the future, it's a cliche, but it is true, that the more likely that the stock market is going to do well for you. But you still need to work out what criteria will determine exactly how well it does for you. Meanwhile, the fascinating thing which I wrote up with some research from Janice Henderson is that analysts are pretty good at predicting how much companies will earn, what their profits will be. And for one year, that is almost useless. Yeah. So this year was all about a fall in PE ratios, which almost nobody predicted. And earnings growth has been fine and almost exactly in line with what people predicted. Doesn't help at all explain what's happened on the markets this year or predict what was going to happen in advance. Right. And that's a real question. Has this year been an Mm. exception in terms of shocks or black swan events or are so-called longer term trends still intact? My best guess is that it's probably a regime change year. I mean, a regime that started to change in 2020. It was obvious that something was going to give. And we've finally seen that this year because inflation really is back and the correlation between bonds and stocks is breaking down. So a lot of those assumptions finally got shaken this year. And that is one of the interesting things about looking at all the research, incidentally. There is more dispersion than there usually is, meaning that yeah, there's greater uncertainty and people are admitting to greater uncertainty because a lot of reliable models for the last 20 years aren't working. On top of that, we had one very major bona fide shock, which is, of course, the invasion of Ukraine. And frankly, a shock that wasn't so much less in economic terms, which is zero COVID in China. China that, that, yeah. that when everybody thought the pandemic was pretty much over, China suddenly started seeing its economy being far more affected by it than it had been before. So those are very major shocks at a point when the regime appears to be changing anyway. So this has been a very unusual year. We do seem to be having many of these unusual years in the the most recent decade. But John, even if we knew what was coming for Mm. sure, even if we were absolutely guaranteed that something was going to happen, would it guarantee Mm. us a better return? It's not necessarily the case, is it? No, I mean, if you've already discounted the good news ahead of time, then it's just as well that the good news finally materialises, but it doesn't particularly help you at that point. Even if you know what's coming, if the market is wildly overpriced in predicting what's coming, you could still come a cropper. You not only need to know what's coming, you also need to work out how well the market is positioned for it. And if things are bad, you also need to understand what the systemic risks might be. Right. Um, so the crypto. So many of us, the other very interesting example this year, it's not a true black swan event because I don't think crypto is big enough, but some of the horrors in crypto were you know, very major, significant deals. And obviously, because it's crypto, which has only been around a little bit more than a decade, 
there's a lack of precedence for it. Luckily, it would appear that crypto isn't linked enough with TradFi, as we now have to call TradFi. it. TradFi, I love that. Yes, the traditional finance that, it, that it's going to cause a systemic event in itself. So, John, given that the new year that, that we know and love or hate is not the new year yes. in every geography or market, how do other markets do over U.S. holidays? <laughs> That's an interesting one. Thanksgiving can create some very weird dynamics in the rest of the world because there's no real holiday at all and it's a complete shutdown here in the States. Christmas, it's interesting almost the other way. that Europe really does just go into complete hibernation for a whole week. And the US, despite being a more religious country in many ways, doesn't take Christmas so seriously. Yes. So you do get some very strange effects that way. In general, anything that happens in the last two weeks of the year, though, is so likely to be driven by low liquidity that it can really alter perceptions in a way it shouldn't. And also the fact that you mentioned China earlier, we have another new year coming up in a couple of months' time. Uh, Well, well, the Chinese New Year really messes things around. You have to, any Chinese data, you have to start applying moving averages to and stuff, or otherwise you just can't quite see what's happening because of the big shifts caused by the moving uh, Lunar New Year, yes. You mentioned how Janice Henderson had talked about the dispersion in predictions this year. One prediction you point out that seems to be almost a universal article of faith, and that's a quote from your column, is that the US will fall into a recession. But you point out the amount of vocabulary being used is hilarious. You know, plain villain, garden variety, softish. But one phrase stood out to you, and that's rolling recession. It sounds very ominous. Explain what it is. I'm not not sure. This is from Lizanne Saunders. Someone's almost moderately positive in that the idea is that there's been a succession of different sectors that have felt the problems in turn and others that have done relatively well as a result. That's in part because the initial pandemic had such differential effects, much bigger impact on some parts of the economy than others. Oil prices, the last I checked, are now actually down for the year incredibly. It's possible that energy, which has been one of the sectors that has kept everybody else aloft, is now going to be underperforming and that that will help other sectors. That's the notion of the rolling recession, is that following the very unusual circumstances of the pandemic, it will be an unusual recession, which hits particular parts of the economy particularly badly at different times, but spares others at different times. So all we have to do is make sure we pick the right parts of the economy to invest in. Exactly, at any one time, yes. Bloomberg Opinions, John Authors. Stay tuned, Stephen Mim next on the outlaw status of the Bahamas, HQ to FTX in a long line of opaque enterprises. This is Bloomberg Opinion. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. 
The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vonnie Quinn. Ah, the Bahamas. Who wouldn't want to be headquartered there, work there, commute to and from that beautiful island nation? And yet, well, let's pause for a moment and bring in Bloomberg Opinion columnist and University of Georgia professor Stephen Mim. So, Stephen, obviously the reason we're talking about the Bahamas is it hosted the headquarters of crypto exchange FTX, which obviously imploded in recent weeks. We don't even know the extent of the damage caused by FTX and the associated Alameda. You say, though, that the first red flag came long before things like opaque balance sheets and odd line items. It was actually the fact that the HQ was the Bahamas. Why is that? Well, you know, the Bahamas have this long-standing reputation, which is arguably quite deserved, of being somewhat loose place legally, a place that really likes to tolerate and has for decades tolerated some fairly shadowy banking operations and also very kind of fly-by-night financial operations. It has regulation, but they are not capably administered, at least haven't been. That's gotten them a very bad reputation. Now, is this something that a particular administration has guided the island towards, or is this something that's been true of the Bahamas since the founding of the island nation? Well, you know, in a way, you could argue that geography is destiny on some level when it comes to the Bahamas, Mm -hmm. because it's incredibly close to the United States. So it's very convenient, but it's also operating completely outside of its legal shadow. So um, long ago, centuries ago, it was a center for piracy, and people sort of operated there with impunity, even though it was a British colony, basically kind of run by warlords almost. (laughs) Um, But later it became a place to run guns during the Civil War, and then during Prohibition. That's really when its story really takes off. The white former kind of planter class got into uh, rum bootlegging and, and shipping rum, and that seems to have created a kind of ethos on the island among the white ruling class that tolerated, well, in that case, illegal operation. But that continued decade after decade. You know, in the 1930s, as Prohibition ended, it it went into tax evasion. It became the the go-to place for evading high-income taxes in the United States. And then it just kind of percolated. Now, you say geography, but also, I guess it's just out of the reach of other regulators. Can other kinds of authorities be involved when it comes to something like crime or shadowy behavior? I mean, could somebody be extradited from the Bahamas, for example? Yes, there are extradition treaties. The bigger problem is the sharing of financial information and the Bahamas' selective refusal to do so with other nations in a kind of reciprocal way. You know, it's gotten a lot of attention, negative attention, for uh, being a place where you can have offshore bank accounts that are unregulated and untaxed. And, you know, they've gotten a lot of pressure to comply with international regulations especially after the year 2000. And because they were put on a blacklist, basically, that made it clear that you shouldn't do business with them. And so since that time, they've sort of grudgingly 
cooperated, but they've done so through this rather clever way of saying, yes, we agree to share information. However, we're only going to share information, say, with the Cayman Islands. We're not going to share information with the EU or, or what have you. So it's like basically they're cooperating with other tax havens, but not with core economic centers of the global financial system. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, is there competition between tax havens then? Yes, there is, actually. It's kind of, you know, it's like a race to the bottom. You know, remember the Panama Papers? You know, Panama is a, is a place. Uh, Switzerland is obviously has a very different reputation. But then you have a lot of these other typically former colonial possessions, now independent nations, Vanuatu, other South Pacific uh, small nations that have become places for this sort of offshore banking. What will change it? Because, you know, we think of the Bahamas as this beautiful island nation. We'd love to work there. You know, we'd love to work right. from there. It'd be an easy commute. Would the Bahamas ever want to become sort of on the up and up as opposed to a place known for the fact that it has a little bit of an outlaw status? Well, you know, I think there's obviously a downside to the crypto implosion taking place within the Bahamas. Mm. And they, this doesn't give them a lot of credibility. And But... It, it would be a very hard habit to shake, and historically has a lot to do with the relationship between a, a ruling class that has had a lot of involvement in very clandestine or shadowy things, and that's probably a very hard habit to break. It's changed a lot, obviously, since independence in the 1970s, but a lot of the original players, they're known as the Bay Street Boys, mm-hmm. which makes it sound like they're like a K-pop band or something, yeah. but they're... <laughs> this is, these the are the, boy these bands. Are the, exactly, but these are like people of British descent who ran the islands for decades and cut all sorts of corrupt deals with organized crime and the like. And I think a lot of that still carries over, and probably paved the way for when crypto made its appearance. Like, you know, here's a new kind of financial speculative entity that's unregulated. It's like, let's, you know, someone in the Bahamas, and they did, they really made a push for this, like, let's bring crypto to the Bahamas, and they succeeded, uh, unfortunately. That's still very much in play of kind of like, do you need a charter? You know, like, (laughs) and also conversely, interestingly enough, historically, denying people charters, people who come in and like someone else's Meyer Lansky mob figures like you're not letting them in. <laughs> they can't build their casino. Wow. Meyer, I mean, the, the casino stuff is the whole awesome side of this. There was a great story. This heir to the A&P fortune went in and tried to build a casino and he built it <laughs> on an island off of Nassau. And then the Bay Street Boys were like, no, like, you're not going to be allowed to take a boat out there. <laughs> so basically, he couldn't. I mean, it's yeah, bad for him. He but. got Bahamas blocked. Yes, Bahamas blocked, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you have a column out that details some of these stories, and, and some of them are incredible and very fascinating, the type of thing that, you know, we all love to read, but at the same time, often these things end very badly for a lot of people, as the FTX history is going to for a lot of people as well. What's the future for the Bahamas? I mean, the fact that a company is headquartered in the Bahamas, is that enough to suggest that there should be a red flag? Or are there plenty of companies that are completely transparent and operating completely in the open that are based there? There are legitimate companies that are based in the Bahamas, for sure. Mm. Absolutely. What's Troubling, though, is the number that are not so legitimate and have been, you know, historically. This is, I think, less of a problem now 
But in the 1970s, for example, the late 70s, there were 300 banks in the Bahamas. There were more banks than bars in the Bahamas. And the vast majority of them what are called like suitcase corporations. They were effectively a post office box and nothing more, but it obtained a, a kind of bogus charter. So the problem is that while there are very legitimate businesses in the Bahamas, I have no doubt, the damage that it does to those businesses to be in the same place as these other businesses is really unfortunate. And I think then that goes to your question, actually, about like, what is the future of the Bahamas? Because it's like guilt by association, which may well be unfair, but that probably then has an unfortunate consequence on future development. I mean, to some extent, I guess I or anybody wouldn't want to judge the island nation, given that it needs tourism. Absolutely. I suppose the easy way to ask it is, can, can we blame the Bahamas? No, and this is really what I've written in certainly the reporting on this. The Bahamas really should not be blamed so much as Sam Bankman-Fried, his associates in FTX, which Mm. were clearly operating in ways. You know, the, the interesting thing, though, is for outside investors, the decision to locate there, you know, it should have been something that might have might have indicated that there could have been something because they since there is this history of not really asking too many questions when someone sets up financial operations in the island nation. And as it turns out, those fears would have been entirely justified about FTX. If someone is coming to you who says, you can't see our balance sheet. We're based at the Bahamas. (laughs) Like, it's like, good Lord. Exactly. You know, maybe you want to look into that. Bloomberg Opinion columnist and University of Georgia professor Stephen Mim. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vonnie Quinn. Kazakhstan re-elected its incumbent president last month. For the next seven years, President Tokayev will run the $200 billion economy and the world's largest uranium producer. Now, Kazakhstan shares the second largest border in the world with Russia after the US-Canada border. And this is where things get complicated. Relations have been a little strained, to say the least, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which Tokayev does not support. Bloomberg Opinion's David Fickling has been examining how countries who need uranium on their way to 
zero carbon power need to start figuring out their supply chain now or uranium might be the next critical mineral crisis. He joined us for a conversation. When we talk about uranium, I guess most of us immediately think about nuclear power. Particularly after the experience of the war in Ukraine, though, atomic energy is now not destined for extinction. So explain to us who we're depending on for uranium and also uranium oxide, the material that's needed for nuclear power. Yeah, so, I mean, uranium oxide is the traded material that is produced by mines and is then sort of further refined to produce the nuclear fuel that's actually put into nuclear power plants. Let's bear in mind, about three quarters of nuclear generation happens essentially in OECD countries, Europe, North America and developed Asia. That will shift a little bit as we see more nuclear plants switched on in places like China, India, but essentially three quarters of nuclear generation is in the rich countries. But those countries and their allies only provide about 20% of the uranium that's actually needed to fuel those reactions. You need each year about 75,000 tonnes of uranium oxide. Roughly two-thirds comes from China, the former Soviet Union, Iran and Pakistan, so essentially countries that are not well aligned with those rich countries. And as we look at the problems in 2022 of being dependent for fuel on a country with which you're not aligned geopolitically, we need to think pretty hard about the fact that the same situation prevails with uranium. And particularly, a huge proportion of the world's uranium comes from just one country, Kazakhstan. And Kazakhstan's diplomatic position is quite an interesting one. It's become more interesting in 2022. They seem to be wanting to be rather more independent of Russia than they have been historically. But if you just look at the position of Kazakhstan on the map, it is very hard for them to carve out a policy that's truly independent of Russia and China together because they are sandwiched between those countries. David, how far out is uranium traded and how is it even traded? Is it contracts? It's not an established and liquid futures market. And even pricing for uranium tends to be from sort of private sources. There are no widespread futures contracts in uranium. Having said that, there is a very clear idea of long-term costs. And this is actually one of the reasons that you see Kazakhstan has become so dominant as a producer of uranium. $30 a pound is a sort of benchmark price for, for viability. Outside of Kazakhstan, most production costs considerably more than that. And of course, if you think back in the history of this, in the 2000s, it was not expected that wind and solar would take off the way they did. So uranium was seen as the future. But a lot of investment went into places like Kazakhstan. And then 2011, you have the Fukushima Daiichi disaster. Atomic generation plummets and prospects for atomic generation plummet even more. So a lot of that investment was basically burnt. And what was left behind was Kazakhstan is the cheapest producer in the market. There are a lot of other projects out there that have been mapped out over the last 30, 50 years. People know the uranium resources that are there but it is not economic to mine that uranium. I was speaking to a producer of rare earths in in Australia here, and they have a project called Nolans in Australia, which is a rare earth project. Rare earths often occur in combination with uranium. Back in the 2000s, they said, well, we can produce rare earths and we can produce uranium. We can make money from each thing. Now, that uranium is seen as a waste material. And in terms of when they're making their pitches to investors, the questions are not how much money can you make from this uranium. It's how do you deal with the cost of this worthless uranium? uranium. It's essentially there because there is so much low-cost production coming out of Kazakhstan that more marginal projects elsewhere in the world are just not viable. But let's just have a think about this in combination with what's happening in 2022. Of course, we're now all saying, gosh, Europe made a big mistake in the 80s and in the 90s, 2000s by becoming so dependent on Russian gas just because Russian gas was the cheapest source of energy. 
we really seem to be making the same mistake here with uranium. There's an unreliable supply chain there for uranium. If we actually want to unlock a more reliable supply chain, we need to have higher incentive prices. And that's going to mean we need more development of nuclear power plants to increase demand in the market. Tell me a little bit about storage. Can you store uranium for the long term? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, an overarching issue we've had since the start of atomic energy is how do you deal with nuclear waste, of course. But in terms of nuclear fuel storage, you can store it a bit. And most nuclear plants, well, all nuclear plants will have a storage facility on site for nuclear fuel that's not yet been loaded into the reactor. You reload the fuel, unlike a coal plant where you're putting it in all the time. With nuclear fuel, every 18 months or so, you replace about a quarter of the fuel that's in the reactor. And the, the fuel comes in the forms of these fuel assemblies, which are a series of rods which are kept in a very secure facility on site, then move from that facility into the reactor. And that's a process that goes on continually. It's a, a very slow refueling process, but it is essentially a refueling process. But you Literally can't. like the, the opening credits to The Simpsons. Yes, exactly, exactly. But obviously you can't keep unlimited quantities of that fuel on site. You have only sort of limited capacity. There are a lot of things that need to be done at a nuclear power plant, so there's limited space for that. And of course, anywhere where you're handling nuclear material, there is a proliferation risk. So it's not like nuclear plants can stock up for the next three decades with all of the uranium they're going to need. There's always going to need to be a supply chain going from mines to nuclear power plants to waste facilities. Yeah, this is a bit of a conundrum. I mean, on the one hand, you have political factions in many developed countries fighting against atomic power. For example, the Green Party in Germany, which didn't want an extension to Germany's nuclear operating licenses. On the other hand, you have countries such as France embracing nuclear completely, and even Japan after Fukushima. I mean, I think the expectation should be, particularly in Asia, a lot of these plants have been set up within the last 10 years. So they will operate for likely 50 years without problems. In developed countries where the fleet of nuclear plants is a lot older, I think that question is still up for debate. Uh, You know, the real factor that's actually dealt a blow to atomic energy over the past 15 years. Certainly, green politics in Europe plays a part in this. But I think the biggest factor is the extreme difficulty of building nuclear plants. Billions have been spent on plants that have never been developed. And particularly, we saw sort of further blow dealt to that by Fukushima. Now, the thing that gets talked about a lot in this space is small modular reactors. This is the idea that you could build much smaller plants, much more of them, the sort of factory building production line type benefit. So what happens to geopolitical alignment, as you say? I mean, how should countries think about this going forward? Yeah, well, I said earlier that the diplomatic position of Kazakhstan is a very interesting one. And I think, you know, we're seeing everywhere in the former Soviet Union outside of Russia, there are some interesting developments happening in that periphery in terms of governments being much less willing to do Moscow's bidding. But I think if you think of really long-term geopolitics, you think about geography. And Kazakhstan, as I say, is landlocked. It's landlocked on most sides by China and Russia, on the other side by Iran and by Afghanistan. And there's a small border through Turkmenistan and Azerbaijan. In terms of getting nuclear material out of Kazakhstan, if you do it by road or by rail, it has to go through one of those countries. Even if you do it by air, generally it's not flown by air because, of course, there's greater risks around carrying things like that by air. Technically, it would be possible, but, of course, even if airspace is circumscribed by those countries. So unless the geopolitics changes, then the reliability of Kazakhstan as a source for most of the world's uranium is going to be contestable. And, and that's why, you know, I think if you go back to the era of the Cold War, if you go back to the 70s and 80s, some of 
somewhere like the US was actually self-sufficient in uranium. A vast amount of effort was put into ways of producing uranium from domestic phosphate reserves and things like that. Really, there is no domestic US production of uranium now. There's a little bit of sort of reprocessing and things, but of fresh mined uranium, there is none of it. That is the sort of thing that if you were talking about a future of real geopolitical Cold War style great power tension, which is, you know, if you're a military planner, that is the sort of thing that you are thinking about after the events of 2022, then you really have to be thinking about, well, how do we have resources, Australia, Canada, in those nations, more reliable allies. Yeah. And so on that then, David, what price would uranium need to go to in order for there to be more production? I mean, if there was a doubling in price, would that cause problems worldwide or, or a solution? It wouldn't really cause a problem for nuclear power plants, the atomic energy sector as a whole, because essentially all the cost of running a nuclear plant is actually building the plant. Prices above $50 a pound, and especially long-term prices above $50 a pound, they would start to change this picture quite significantly. Plenty of miners are sitting on uranium resources, which they regard as waste because they can't get a good enough market price for it. Prices significantly above $50 a pound would really start to have people going back to their spreadsheets and their mining assays and working out what they could do with that. But it has to be not what we're seeing at the moment. We see a clear sign of short-term prices spiking well above flat level. The thing that's going to make a miner sit up and take notice is long-term pricing, which is different and frankly is hard to calculate with a fairly illiquid commodity like uranium. And it would really come down to, if you're an operator of nuclear power plants, do you actually go a little bit like we see Tesla going to someone who operates a cobalt resource and saying, I want to buy your cobalt. It would similarly, I think, require atomic energy utilities going to uranium miners and saying, I want to buy uranium and I'll unlock it at this price. It's such a small and illiquid market that it really needs that producer to consumer contact. We're unlikely to have a sort of liquid futures market that would actually represent that. Bloomberg Opinion's David Fickling. To China now and its fiscal position. COVID-0 has obviously drained public coffers. The deficit in the budgets for all levels of government, in fact, is nearly triple what it was this time last year. Incomes are down due to tax breaks for business and land sales have slumped too. Spending, of course, has also spiked to pay for lockdowns and COVID testing. Policy bank support and bond issuance, well, they haven't filled the funding gap. I spoke with Bloomberg Opinion's Shuli Ren about how China approaches taxation. Shuli, how do you see China developing its system of taxation over the next year or so? Will new taxes be created in order to deal with the fiscal problem? Actually, just explain how taxes are designed and collected now in China. I would say China's fiscal system is very poor. The government is not good at collecting taxes, unlike the U.S. IRS. So, like, for instance, China doesn't have inheritance tax, hardly has any property tax. There is definitely no wealth tax. Even, like, a corporate tax, companies are quite good at using accounting gimmicks to avoid corporate tax. Yes, there has been a lot of speculation on Chinese government implementing inheritance or wealth tax. But I think the actual implementation will be very difficult because they have to somehow find people who know how to calculate billionaire wealth, right? I think they're better off just latching onto those big tech companies, JD.com, Pinduoduo, or Alibaba, and say, you provide employment, you provide social benefits for your employees for the local governments where you do business, because that's just easier than like tracking down individuals and high net worth families. How scared are the ultra rich in China? You mentioned in your column that after the party congress and President Xi Jinping's speech, the rich got a little nervous. And China does have a system where you can renounce your citizenship, obviously, if you can get citizenship elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Would they have to pay an exit tax, so to speak? 
Yeah, there is this speculation right now. The speculation is that China is going to follow the U.S. system in that Chinese citizens are taxed worldwide, right? So even in Hong Kong, I know in recent days, Hong Kong's global investment banks, they have been asking their employees of Chinese origin if they have a Chinese passport because they have to do the tax withholding. So they are quite nervous. And then the idea is that maybe one day China will also install an exit tax. And that explains why Singapore is so hot these days. If you go to Singapore, there will be a lot of rich Chinese there because Singapore doesn't have any inheritance tax, doesn't have any wealth tax. And then it's been kind of culturally close to the Chinese society and a lot of very wealthy Chinese have moved there. Do you have any numbers on how many billionaires there are in China and what kind of percentage in tax they do pay to their local municipalities and elsewhere? I think the billionaires don't pay very much tax, just like uh, the, the U.S. tax billionaires. They don't pay much tax, right? They, they don't pay themselves any salaries. They basically use their shares as collateral to take on margin loans. And I think it's a very similar system in China. So in that sense, they don't really pay tax because they don't really have income. Shuli, you mentioned that Xi pivots fast. From week to week, we saw President Xi make a huge pivot in terms of the COVID controls. Does that mean that President Xi is watching the markets as closely as we all are? I don't think he watches markets, but he does watch his own fiscal coffers. He watches his own wallet. And then what we have seen with the UK and what happened to the guild market is that globally, all governments start to have to worry about their fiscal responsibility and discipline, right? And then like uh, because of this COVID control and the very stringent developer and tech crackdown, China is running its biggest fiscal deficit in decades. And it has used up all its fiscal power. So going into 2023, he will have to reopen the economy and have to get along with big tech. Because otherwise, that means that China will have to raise its debt ceiling. And who is going to buy Chinese government bonds or like, uh, you know, uh, investment grade corporate bond? Because a lot of the issuers are government affiliates. Bloomberg Opinions, Shuli Ren. That does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. Do get in touch with us, though. We love to hear your thoughts and opinions. I'm at vquinn at bloomberg.net. Don't forget, we're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.